welcome to the June 17th, 2007 podcast of Reverend Liz and Friends at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Silver Spring. I'm going to start with this one which is written by someone young, I think. And it says, why do we have to go to church? (laughs) And these reasons are different for many of us. The reason I have to go to church (laughs) is different from why many of you have to go to church. And I have to confess that I'm frequently extremely impressed that as many of you do go to church as you do. Because there are occasionally mornings, <laughs> I will confess, when I, uh, when I wake up and think, boy, you know, all things being equal, if I didn't have to go to church today, I might not be there. Um, but why do we have to go to church? In fact, the reason I'm here is not because you pay me to be here, but because I have chosen a life that I find deeply fulfilling. And while it may be hard to roll out of bed on some Sunday mornings, by the time I'm on the road, I'm always very happy to be coming where I'm coming. And, uh, and as your minister, it is not unusual for me to have an experience um, in worship that lifts me up because of things you guys do or say. Um, And in that way, I think that's part of a mutual experience of going to church that I'm lucky that I can share in as the minister because I think many of us go to church because we are lifted up by something other people do or say in the congregation. Some of us have to go to church because we need not to be alone and we find communion in church. Roland Barth once said, we read to know that we are not alone. And I wrote that down and remembered it because I thought, that's true. That is one of the reasons I read. I read to know that I'm not alone. I read things and I see a piece of myself in a book um, or can lose myself in a book uh, and feel less alone in the world that way. And I think church is another experience. Congregational life, not merely Christian church. Congregational life generally is another important way to know that we are not alone. And perhaps more important when, uh, when the parish experience of being in a town where people know each other's business and reach out to each other and you have neighborhoods and a sense of knowing and being known is increasingly not the experience of life in America, as has been very much written about. Uh, congregational life is a place where you come in and, and you are known and people know who you are and learn who you are and new people are welcomed in and find a place for themselves and when you're in difficulties the church reaches out and when other people are in difficulties you have a chance to reach out and I think that's another important reason why people come to church Unitarian Universalist Church is also a place that people come to for learning and we associate learning with spiritual discipline so for us, it's not, it's not that worship, as Jacob Trapp wrote about, he talked about all the different ways that we worship, and learning is one of the ways that we worship because of the UU principle that revelation is continuous, which goes against more creedal definitions of faith that say this is the truth, you must align yourself with this truth, and then you will be living a sacred and right life. And we say there's a lot of truth out there, and what is true now may change. Our understanding of what's ultimately true may change over time, and our task is to continue to align ourselves with what we continue to learn as truth over the course of a lifetime. 
And that's what sacred living is. And church is ideally an important place to do that in Sunday's morning worship services, in other more communal worship experiences, in adult religious education, perhaps in volunteer opportunities that we have and learn from and are changed by. So that experience of learning and living according in accordance with what we learn uh, and believe is probably another important reason to come to church. Lastly, and perhaps most significantly on practical terms, we come to church because someone in our family makes us. Uh, <laughs> there are children looking for their <laughs> accusingly at parents in the back. Um, and it is true that many parents drag children to church, uh, even to this church. It's also true that many children drag parents to church, Um, A lot of parents are nodding emphatically in the background, which is a nice dynamic, um, that it's it's a somewhat mutual experience. It is true that spouses drag other spouses to church, that friends drag friends to church, um, that neighbors drag new neighbors to church occasionally. We go um, out of a sense uh, of obligation sometimes, but also out of a sense of openness and, again, wanting to connect. Um, And so many of us have to come to church initially because we are brought slash compelled by another. Um, And many of you have spoken to me about the fact that that's how you started to come to this church and that that is no longer the reason why you come to church. So the last reason ultimately is that we continue to come to church because, uh, because we need to. Is there any credible, scholarly, historical evidence of what Jesus of Nazareth did between his childhood and age 30, or do people only have speculations? Um, I would have to say, specific to him, there's very little, if any, credible scholarly historic evidence for what he did um, in his individual life. But we know a lot about what was happening um, in the major cities and areas where he lived. Um, and we know something about the milieu that he would have grown up in as the son of a carpenter, et cetera, et cetera. So there are guesses we can make about places he would have spent time, work he would have done, experiences he would have had um, that are based on our knowledge of, uh, of Jewish society um, in the Galilee in that time. Um, and... Some of that is the same stuff he did later. I mean, he would have, for instance, we know he would have had plenty of experiences of going to weddings, and there's the marriage at Cana. There's stories in the Gospels that come up later that are continuing life experience. But, um, but there's not ultimately much evidence of what he actually did um, in his childhood and before he rose to fame. And conversely, it should probably be said, because I think there's, um, there's not always clarity around this, but um, my belief and understanding based on two master's degrees at Divinity School is that Jesus lived. So people are sometimes up in the air. There's certainly uh, a lot more debate we can have about the significance of, of his life and how he was understood and how universally he was understood and the significance most especially of his death. Um, but there's no reason to suppose that he didn't live. Um, There is plenty of indirect evidence and a little direct evidence for that, um, and no reason to suppose that he didn't live as one of a number of messianic figures um, who lived uh, at that time and in that place. Um, And certainly, so that while there's a lot of question about what was happening before he um, before he started his um, his life of mission, um, there's 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 no doubt that he did in fact travel around as an itinerant preacher and gather a band of followers and 
um, and challenge some of the power structures around him, etc. Are we separate from God? This is one of those tough questions to answer because, um, because any answer I give you is a personal one. There's plenty of people in this congregation who don't believe in God. Um, and there's plenty of people who do, and that's part of what gives this congregation its richness. Um, and promise for the larger world is people uh, living together in peace who don't hold exactly the same views and believing we can learn from each other um, because of our differences. Um, that said, traditional Unitarian and Universalist theology has held that, um, that humanity participates and, um, and can perceive holiness on an individual level. Um, so that if all of us walked around with our eyes truly open um, and sought to lead lives of enlightenment um, to the degree that we, say, lead lives of capitalism, if we spent eight hours a day seeking enlightenment every day, you know, maybe including weekends, etc., um, that we would get closer to a God that participates in us and that we participate in. I've spoken before, but not recently, about my own theology, which, uh, which has changed, but not lately. Um, and the sermon that I preached a few years ago, for me, still holds. I said like, it was called like Water for God, riffing on that like Water for Chocolate title. And I talked in that sermon how the, about having a simile theology, um, and that for me, my apprehension or experience of the divine um, is the same as my sense of water in the world, where sometimes there's lots of it and sometimes there's none of it. Um, now, that's, that's not in congruence with a lot of other theologies which talk about you know, God being present. If God exists, God is present all the time, and it's on us to, put, to align ourselves more rightly with God and, and access God and pray and things like that. Um, and my experience has been that there have been times that, um, that I have felt very suffused with a sense of the divine. And other times when I have felt, um, for all my yearning and trying, utter, an utter absence of the divine. And for me, that doesn't challenge a sense that nonetheless the divine may exist, just as water exists, right? And you could drown in it if you're in the ocean, but you could also die of thirst for it if you're in the desert, so the fact that there's no, de no water in the desert mean, doesn't mean that water doesn't exist. It just means that water really isn't there. Unitarian Universalism holds that our human perceptions of things matter and that we need to pay attention to what we perceive and how we perceive things and that those are spiritual tools and avenues for understanding. Our conscience is another one of those. So when we perceive the divine in some way on a walk in the woods or in a moment of prayer or meditation, that's something we ought to honor. And conversely, if we feel an absence of the divine, we might just as rightly honor that and say, God is not with me right now. In this moment of despair, when I am reaching out and in the midst of a situation that seems devoid of any goodness or redemption, that's real. And God may be somewhere doing good elsewhere, but God is not here right now with me. So that's my, that's my take on it, which would say then that sometimes, uh, sometimes we may be separate from God. Uh, sometimes I have felt very separate from God, uh, despite all my yearning. But there are other times that I have felt very connected to God. Um, so, so it's not fundamentally a yes, we're always separate, or no, we're never separate for me. 
sometimes I think we must be separate from God and other times not. How do you use explain the lack of racial diversity in our congregations? In particular, how do black UU ministers explain this? There's a great book on this by Reverend Mark Morrison Reed, who is a black UU minister, um, called Black Pioneers in a White Denomination that he published many years ago. I think he did it as a, um, I think he did it as a doctoral thesis. Um, and he is one of my favorite um, UU ministers and a tremendous preacher and, uh, and, a, and a very respected leader. He's at one of our churches in Canada right now with his wife, who is his co-minister. Um, and Mark Morrison Reed's book, which I have in my office, um, says that for a long time this denomination identified itself as white and was not welcoming to black clergy, among other things. So that uh, although Unitarians and Universalists had a major role in a lot of um, social reform movements, including especially the abolition movement, um, which both Unitarians and Universalists, who merged in the 1960s, um, but had parallel tracks for quite a long time before that, both of them were enormously involved in that. The movie uh, Glory about Robert Gould Shaw that starred Matthew Broderick that some of you may have seen. He was a Unitarian, and he was the son of a Unitarian minister, and that's kind of a classic thing. But even that movie is a good example of the kind of division we're talking about, because if you remember, he had all white, he was white, he had all white officers, and he didn't have really many exper- any experience, life experience with African Americans, and they put this regiment together to fight in the Civil War, and they had to figure out how to negotiate that, and they made some terrible mistakes along the way um, and went down fighting. Um, so that's not unlike, in some ways, uh, part of the story of the history of the Unitarian Universalist movement. Um, the, current, the current sense about why that's still true is mixed. There are certainly plenty of congregations, not plenty, there are certainly some congregations, particularly in this area, like All Souls, our flagship church in Washington, D.C., that are very intentionally diverse, that have had both African-American and white ministers, um, and that celebrate their diversity very intentionally and beautifully and manage to maintain it in that way. Um, but also, even they're finding a struggle right now because churches are, among other things, a reflection of where they're at. And uh, All Souls is in Columbia Heights, which is increasingly becoming gentrified. So they have a large African-American population, a large Hispanic population, and a growing population of young, single, hip, white people. Um, because that's who's moving into that area in the city. Um, and so figuring out how to maintain their diversity um, is something that they have to be very intentional about. On the other hand, they do great things, like they always make sure that there's um, an African-American presence in the pulpit on a Sunday as well as a white presence. So when I was guest preaching there last year, uh, the member of the board who did the announcements and the readings in the service was an African-American woman. Um, and that wasn't an accident or happenstance or the way it rotated through. So. Certainly, a lot of congregations uh, take very intentional steps to promote a sense of African Americans in their congregations that then helps them hopefully build that. Um, And a lot of them don't. This congregation here in Silver Spring is the most racially diverse congregation I have ever served. Um, I came, yeah, I came here from Massachusetts. I came here from Massachusetts and New York, and I was like, wow, look at all this racial diversity. (laughs) Um, And there's a part of me that still looks out and sees a lot of different colors in the congregation and is so glad to see that. You guys are rock stars compared to the Newton Church where I grew up, where we had one African-American member the whole time I was there. Um, There's also 
there's also all kinds of issues about how much is Unitarian Universalism able to change itself, how much is it fundamentally staying a sort of white-collar, fairly intellectual faith, um, and does, does that really allow for diversity or not? Um, and there's a lot of different arguments about whether that allows for diversity or not. Um, and there's also a sense sometimes that white people are also so eager for racial diversity that, you know, a person of color walks into the building and, you know, ten people rush. Oh, we're so glad you're here. Oh, how nice to meet you. I'm so-and-so. Where are you from? Da-da-da-da-da-da. And, um, and sort of, you know, and if anything, that just pushes the person out the door because they're like, oh, this is, you know, this is life in a, life in a fishbowl and this is not the way I want to be feeling in, in a congregation of, you know, of mutual peers. There is, um, there is a couple of curricula that have been produced in the last 15 years um, that try to look at, called a journey toward wholeness, that look at how Unitarian Universalist congregations handle their racial diversity and how we could handle it better. Um, and some, of, some congregations have felt like that was a great congregation and really moved them to a different place, and some felt like it was just a lot of white guilt for people who already feel a lot of white guilt and just made people feel more guilty. And that didn't really advance things in the end. So the question of how we increase our diversity is still an open one um, at this church and certainly um, in our denomination as well. From a theological standpoint, what is the purpose of anger? There's a story that the minister who trained me told me about, um, about a monk in a monastery who was a model of, um, a model of devotion. And terrible things happened to him. And I can't remember the details now of the story, but, you know, he lost many members of his family to horrible wasting illnesses. And, um, and, and numerous hardships were endured by him over a long time. And every time he got news of the next blow, he would always go to the chapel um, right away by himself and spend time there. Um, and one day he got another terrible blow and went to the chapel, and the you know the the abbot of the of the order who 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 had given him the news thought, I just can't keep leaving him alone to deal with these things. I need to go be with him. And he he followed him, and he was you know a minute later getting into the chapel, and the monk was standing, um, the monk was standing right before facing the crucifix of Jesus on the wall, um, and he was looking up at him and. And pardon my French, but this is the story. And he looked up at Jesus, and he was saying, you son of a bitch. Um, that story was told to me when I was trying to find an answer for myself to the issue of, of what is the purpose of anger. Um, and Woody told me that story to, to talk about that a frank honoring of anger is an important part of any theological journey. There's less, perhaps, honoring of that in the Christian tradition, which, um, which t- so, sometimes seems to focus more on a turn-the-other-cheek uh, mentality where you, know, you suffer a wrong or an injury or are enraged by something, and, and what you need to do is struggle to accept it and move on. Um, and there's much less of a focus on that in Judaism. Um, which, uh, which allows for a lot of theological wrangling and a lot of anger at God. And there are numerous instances in the Bible, like Jonah, um, for example, where people actually get into a fight, an argument with God. You'd think they'd you know, think twice before doing that, but they don't. <laughs> they don't. 
Um, and they say, and Jonah, you know, has this whole thing with God because he has to go to Nineveh and, and tell them that they're going to be destroyed for their misdeeds, and then they repent, and then and so God's not going to destroy them. And Jonah is pissed because he wasted all this time and spent the time in the belly of the beast and all that down with the whale, cause, and he knew that it was going to work out this way. That's what he says. He's angry at God's forgiveness, and he goes out and sulks in the desert, um, and God says, why are you sulking? And he says, because this was a waste of my time, and I knew you would do this, and this whole thing, they're not even going to strike them dead now, and I said you would. <laughs> And this is just a big waste and the hell with you. And, um, and God teaches him a lesson about forgiveness, but he's very frank about his anger. Um, he's very frank about his anger, and the lesson comes because of being in an angry dialogue with God. Um, so Judaism is more okay with that and teaches a greater okayness with that, um, perhaps, than Christianity does. And I certainly fall into that school. Um, if there is a God and if there is a purpose to spiritual searches with or without a God, um, those searches need to be authentic. And if what we really feel is anger, expressing that anger within the framework of our theology has to be a part of any process that's going to move us to resolution. Um, so just simply swallowing your anger or pretending to God or the cosmos that it doesn't exist um, is not, I think, a fruitful um, or possible way to actually have an authentic spiritual life. Sometimes it feels like I need to lead a celibate life. What could be a useful purpose for a celibate life? There have been years I could speak to that point. <laughs> and, and my personal take on the purpose uh, or uses of a celibate life is that, um, is that, in fact, your energy goes elsewhere. Um, I don't know if a celibate life means actually a life without children or without a partner, um, and therefore a life of, of a solitary life as well as a celibate life, or merely a life where you're not spending um, energy and time on, on romance and sexuality. Um, Unitarian Universalism does not hold that celibate life is a holier life or a more purposeful life or a more sacred life, which is one of the reasons why it's not a standard for ministry. Um, it's not even a, a recognized role in ministry. We don't have, you know, Unitarian Universalist um, monks or nuns or, um, or orders where, where that's part of the way we live. Um, but there are certainly people who, um, by choice or, or, or by necessity, do lead celibate lives as Unitarian Universalists. Um, and again, my experience has been that uh, when that has been the case, there's been a lot of opportunity uh, to focus on other things because you're not thinking about, you know, where should we go for dinner on Saturday night and let's get home early. Um, so you're spending your time, you're spending your time on other stuff. And whatever purposes, whatever other purposes you wish you could get to in your life that would lend it meaning that you can't get to otherwise would certainly be things that you can give your time and energy to then. Um, and whether those are you know, purely spiritual pursuits or meaningful volunteer pursuits and social justice pursuits are, are, are up to each of us. But um, there's always a question for all of us about how we spend our time and energy and how we allocate it. What do religious historians think is true about Jesus and his life, the Cliff Note version? Well, I sort of dealt with this. Um, he, he, he did live. He did start a movement. His was not the only movement of its kind, uh, even while during his lifetime, nor before his lifetime, nor after his lifetime. Um, and he did have followers, and he did die, and his followers did, um, in seeking for meaning after his death, find meaning in their story of his resurrection. Cliff Note version. 
Is evil a force in the universe? Is good? I've actually just been write, asked to write uh, for a UU pamphlet on this question about my take on evil and good. Um, and I need more time to reflect on it. I will say briefly that I believe evil is a force. I don't think the devil is the manifestation of evil in the universe, but I think there is evil and good. James Luther Adams, probably our most eminent Unitarian Universalist theologian of the 20th century, said that, um, said that he believed there was evil and good, and it was as perceptible in the world as, um, as a shadow may be perceptible in opposition to light. And that good points ra- evil points round to good, just as a shadow points round to the sun. Um, and his very tangible sense of, of of tangible evil in the world, as well as tangible good, reflects my own. A couple more. Why do bad things happen to good people? For example, kids getting cancer. Um, there's a book that I'm sure most of you have heard about called Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People that answers this in greater depth than I could, and it's written by a rabbi whose son uh, had a terminal disease, um, a degenerative and then terminal disease. I guess I think this relates to the first question. I think evil does exist in the world, and I guess I can amp- amplify on that a little bit and say my own sense of evil is a sense of chaos. There certainly, I think, is rightly a little bit of chaos, even in a well-ordered world, to keep it dynamic. Um, But my sense of evil, when I feel really suffused um, and and despairing, is a sense of utter chaos, that there is no merit in the world, that bad things are happening to good people, and that crappy people are getting all kinds of breaks, and, um, and that it is an utterly chaotic system that you cannot wrest meaning out of. There is no redeeming thing to be found. There's no good that's going to happen that's going to that's going to meet the evil that's 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 happening now in a certain in any situation. It is an utterly chaotic, um, illogical, and irredeemable situation. Um, and and it is the nature of the world that that happens and is part of the system. We can argue that. In a larger sense, chaos is necessary to keep things growing, and so sometimes it's terrible and creates terrible evils. Um, and that, that then focuses down through, that, through funnels to individual people whose lives are destroyed in terrible ways um, and in, un, in, in ways that cannot be redeemed. Um, and I, I think that is my explanation of why bad things happen to good people. It's certainly, certainly not, you know... A, uh, a, 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 an old-time Protestant explanation, for example, that people are all, you know, damned because of original sin, and, and therefore um, punishment is happening appropriately to people who seem themselves innocent. I need to dig down because I've just been taking off the. You know, I knew someone would ask this question. I really did, and I thought, no, they wouldn't. Are you and Tim going to get married? <laughs> I knew you would. And if so, when? And I thought of my answer last night, haha, because I knew you would ask. <laughs> and my answer is when we decide, you will not be the first to know. Please explain the amen as you did a few years ago. I love amen. Amen is originally from the biblical Hebrew, amin. And it is, um, it is a word that 
that is um, that's actually used exactly right in African American congregations in this country. So when someone's saying something and people are like, "Amen, preach it right on," that's what that's what "Amen" means. It means it's translated in you know in lofty, uptight biblical dictionaries as "Verily so," and um, <laughs> but that's not something anyone exclaims anymore, no matter how emotional you may feel. So. So verily so is, is not an option, but that's what it is. It is, a, it is an, affirming, an affirming statement that you say at the end of something. Um, this church didn't say amen when I came here, and I think it's an important word, and I, I, use it, um, I use it after our times of prayer. I would hope that whatever we are praying or meditating about is something that when we come to the conclusion, we can mark it with an affirming statement that says, you know, that says thus, that says verily so. Um, so I say it, and I notice you guys still never say it, though I have explained it a few times. <laughs> and you can keep on not saying it, and I will keep on saying it. Like, like, like... <laughs> we're like the Felix and Oscar of, of UU liturgy. Um, uh, but I notice also that you do sometimes say it when you really feel it, and that is, again, goes back to that point of authenticity. So I'd much rather you not say it just because you feel constrained and occasionally say it when you feel so moved. Um, I'm going to pick one more. From the YRUU. Hello. What is the role? The YRUU are here in the front row. The, the young religious Unitarian Universalists of our church. What's the role of youth in a UU church? Um, I think... I think your role is, is particular to this church, actually. My role when I was growing up in a UU church was to grow up in the UU church. And there wasn't much of a sense, I think, in the church of, of us as, as people or as, of us as a group within the church that had a piece of the life of the church in that way. They just raised us and sent us forward, and they were proud of us as individuals. But it wasn't a sense of, you know, that there were the young adults and the young folks with kids and the retirees and the youth group as as a group within the church. And you guys, I think, have inherited um, a long tradition in this church of being a group unto yourselves that is known as a group within the church. And my sense of what your group has meant to this church over time, so not just you guys who are here now, but folks who were here five years ago and six years ago when I first started and then before I started, my sense of your role in the life of the church um, is that it's primarily twofold. It is um, that you give us hope, because you give us an opportunity to, um, to see what the new generation is looking like, the new generation of Unitarian Universalists is looking like, that is going out in the world and hopefully carrying our message of welcome and openness. And that's a real, it may sound hokey, but I think it's really true. I think it's really true. And the people who have kids who, who grew up in this church and came back to it or someone else, like Jeff Gavitt, the guy who did the, guy who did the announcements today, grew up in this church, like you guys. Um, so I think for parents who have their kids like grow up and, and keep on participating and keep on standing up for the values that we believe in, that's enormously important and important to the church at large. Um, and I think you also, you know, help keep us vital and help keep us youthful. The service that you do each year um, and the programs that you run and things like paper bag dramatics at Catoctin and, um, and your presence among us um, 
helps keep us in touch and helps keep us from becoming quite as much fuddy-duddies um, as we might otherwise become. I certainly see a trend in myself to become a fuddy-duddy. I've noticed that sometimes on Sunday mornings when I see folks coming up and down the steps as I'm running around to get things ready, I say, um, and I never thought I would say this, I say, Heidi ho <laughs> I say, Heidi ho to people. <laughs> Anything would be better than Heidi ho So there's this... There's this fuddy-duddy trend in churches, um, and I, you know, perpetuate it myself to my dismay. And, um, and you guys act against it, you know? We've got that awesome pink dog collar in the front row. Stand up so everybody can see. <laughs> um, which is so un ho um, and it's and it's it's really important. Um, I, I saw that, and I thought I, midway through, I actually was looking and thinking, "Wow, I only now have realized that she's wearing a pink dog collar in the church," um, because because you come as you are, and we know the beauty of your souls, and we trust the beauty of your souls. And so the fact that you then come, you know, looking edgy or pushing pushing the envelope among us um, is fine and good for us in many ways. So I think that those are two very important things that you offer the church. There are many other questions that I haven't gotten to um, and that I need to leave for another time, but I will sort through them um, and, and try to answer them in, um, in another sermon or perhaps another questioning sermon. Later on, I had the choice of doing this two ways, of answering them on the fly or asking you to submit them in advance. Um, and, um, and I got this idea from other ministers, and the ones who do it on the fly feel like Having to do it on the fly um, is important in terms of the authenticity that, you know, I'm not spending a lot of time researching and thinking of politically correct answers to things and stuff like that. Um, so we've done the on-the-fly version, um, and I hope, it has, um, I hope it has been engaging for people. Um, and I will try to sort through these and see if uh, we should do another on-the-fly or, um, or if there's a couple of these I can answer at greater length. Thank you for, for all of them today.